You're listening to the Table Talk podcast brought to you by the team at Food Matters. Welcome. In these podcasts, we explore a huge range of crucial issues and exciting developments in the food industry with brilliant guests drawn from all areas of expertise. I'm Stefan Gates. I'm a TV presenter and writer, and I specialize in food and science. In today's podcast, we're looking at the secrets of appetite. You might think the question, are you full, might, would have a simple answer, but new research shows us that it's much more complicated and much more fascinating than that. At the same time, lots of food is marketed to us as keeping us fuller for longer. My question is, how does this work and what does it mean? And joining us to discuss this are Alexandra Johnson, Professor of Human Nutrition at the Rowlett Institute. Hello. Thank you, Stefan. No worries. And Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan, Nutrition Scientist working with HRS Communications. Hello. Now, I just want to start with you, Alex. Welcome back. We, we talked um, a little bit about this subject area about a year or so ago. Let's start just by laying down the groundwork. Um, what do we mean by satiety and satiation? What, what are they? And is, is there a difference between the two? Yes. Um, thank you for inviting me back. Um, so a really interesting topic. So the words satiation and satiety are often used interchangeably, but from a scientific point of view, they do actually mean different things. So satiation as a formal expression means that it's a process that leads to the termination of eating, and that might be accompanied by a feeling of satisfaction. So that's the process whereby when you're sitting eating a meal that you put your knife and fork down. And then there's a period of time, an intermeal interval that you don't need to eat again. And that period is what we call satiety. So that's the feeling of fullness that persists after eating. And that is really interesting and important because that suppresses energy intake until hunger returns and then you seek food. So, so it's, it's more, more complex than just the concept of I feel full, isn't it? It's, it's about how full you feel for how long, um, the, the, the level of satisfaction that you have, what your body's doing with it. Is, is that right? So, yes. I mean, these are all terms that are linked to appetite control. And of course, we know that is incredibly complex because there are times where we're hungry and we would like to eat, but uh, we are not able to go and obtain food. And there are times that actually we're not hungry, but then we still go and have something to eat. We still have a, a, a sensation that we feel that we need, uh, you know, the chocolate bar, the crisps. So, yes, that's incredibly complex. And it's a set of sort of sensory perceptions, I guess, with, with you know, with different aspects of our body sending messages to, to our brain. And the impact of it is, is huge, isn't it? Because, it, I mean, how, how closely does it relate, relate to concepts like obesity? So we know that um, appetite is a key driver for our process of obtaining and consuming food. But we do live in what we call an obesogenic environment where it's very easy to obtain food seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And often that food is cheap, uh, energy dense and easy to consume. And that in combination with a sedentary lifestyle means that it's actually very easy to overconsume our calories. And interestingly, it's actually quite difficult to lose weight, isn't it? And that's because the, 
the appetite system, these signals that we that you talked about are very good at telling us when we're hungry, but the termination of eating and the sort of the, the process of telling us when we've, we've consumed too much is much weaker. And the, I, from, from my personal point of view, I, I had a friend um, who was pretty obese and he, his fundamental method of overcoming that was to say, I, I stopped eating until I couldn't eat anymore. Um, and it sounds like a really simple concept, but it dramatically changed his health. Do, do, does that relate to what we're talking about here? So it does, yes. Yeah. So um, what he's describing there is that feeling of physical fullness. So, it, it, But many people um, are not able to distinguish the drive to eat, whether it's a sort of emotional sensation or whether it's coming from what he described, the physical sense of requiring to eat. Of mm -hmm. course, there are other cues that might tell us that we need to eat, like our stomach rumbling or that slight sort of dizziness, nausea, which tells us that our blood glucose is dropping. And really remember that eating is a form of learned behaviour. So we learn to recognise these cues, physiological cues, and we then recognise that by eating a food, it will diminish these cues and then have potentially a positive impact on how we feel. Now, when you say physiological cues, what are these things? What is the messaging process that, that our body is using? Is, is, it, is it hormones being, being released at a certain point? Is it, uh, is it mechanoreceptors, you know, literally uh, you know, parts of our, of our stomach saying, oh, my gosh, I can't take any more, where, where the, the message is going back that's saying it is physically full. What, what's, the, what's the mechanism that, that, we, that we're using to tell ourselves all about satiety? So that, that's a great question. And um, because I'm interested in appetite research, what I want to do is refer to John Blundell's work, which he um, developed um, something called the Satiety Cascade, which is still in use to describe that mechanism. And I think it's a good way to think about this in terms of that as soon as we see food, then there are sensory aspects of that uh, influence on appetite. So for example, your mouth will start producing saliva at the thought of going to eat some delicious food. Mm -hmm. There's also the cognitive aspects of food in that your um, cultural and um, beliefs will influence the choices that you make. And then when you put the food into, uh, into the mouth, then it's the process of digestion absorption is commenced and then it goes into the stomach, which is, and then, yes, you will get that sort of mechanism, the stretch receptors telling us that that uh, food is there and that we have uh, that initial early onset of feeling full. And then as the, the food will empty from the stomach and, of course, the stomach, there's that food gut brain access. So all this information has been collated uh, from signals going from the stomach into the brain and there are signals going from the brain to the stomach. And then we get the post-absorptive phase, um, which would be the release of different hormones and metabolites. So, so that kind of 
um, describes a process that goes from, you know, those early uh, few seconds to minutes of seeing food and putting it in your mouth uh, to over several hours. So that's a real multimodal affair, isn't it? Yes, it makes it quite complex to study as well. Now, this complexity, I think, is really interesting because as well as it being, being fascinating, it also means that we don't really know everything yet, or at least we don't necessarily know the interconnection between all the different aspects of appetite and, and the sensory aspects of, of eating and things like that. You've been working on this for a while. We know that, that research has been, has been coming out and, and is continuing to be released. What would you say we still don't know? What are we lacking in terms of understanding the entire process? Oh, I mean, gosh, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, I think that there's a lot about nutrition that we don't understand, and um, my feeling is that there is no one magic sort of signal for appetite control. And that we do need to consider it uh, um, as a sort of interconnecting sort of Venn diagram and many of these signals are have other roles in the body and that also makes it complex. So mm. for the purposes of dieting, we need to truly understand the influence of both nutritional but also equally as important non-nutritional influences on our food choices. And that might be something as simple as stress or some of the latest research that I'm doing just now is time of day and interaction with, for example, circadian rhythm. So um, so I think all this leads to what I would call a precision nutrition approach or a personalised nutrition approach and that we need to accept that one diet does not fit all people and that really we need to embrace that there probably are lots of different ways that people can use as a toolkit to lose weight, but we actually don't know which diet will fit which type of person. And, that, and that's definitely going to be the future of nutrition science. Mm. Now, if anyone's interested in this, particularly interested in the subject, that we did a fascinating talk with Alex talking about chrononutrition, um, which you can look up in our archives. Now, um, just to, I mean, we've been talking about quite grand scale concepts um, already. Let's just roll back a little bit. Could you give us some examples of the different foods? And I know that everyone's complex and that, we're, that our physiological processes are all very individual. But can you give some examples of the different foods that send different messages to the brain at, uh, in at different sort of time scales? Um, could you paint a little picture of how it works in, in a very simple level? Yeah, sure. So I suppose maybe you can focus on a couple of aspects of of our diet and that um, a lot of my research has been around uh, high protein, moderate carb diets. So that would be diets that contain, for our research purpose, about 30% protein and about 40% um, carbohydrate. And when we introduce a higher proportion of protein as part of a calorie controlled diet, we get something called protein-induced satiety. So there's a lot of research that suggests that when you eat more protein, that has a, a better capability of being able to uh, fill you up for a longer period of time. And that's in comparison to the other macronutrient, which would be carbohydrate and fat, and I'm ignoring alcohol here. So um, the mechanism for that is probably quite complex and will likely involve the breakdown and release of amino acids. 
So it's likely to have also an effect that when the protein releases the gut hormones, they will feed back into the brain and uh, potentially uh, feedback from the liver. So, so that's just one example how we can um, design dietary approaches to try and maximise that fullness effect. And that's really important because as you reflected, your friend said he managed to uh, lose weight by instigating this feeling of fullness. And that's important because one of the main reasons that people fail to comply to a weight loss diet is simply because they feel hungry. And when you feel hungry, you are kind of ready just to grab the nearest um, sort of snack food if you're eating on the go Mm -hmm. um, or eat for other reasons like to improve mood. So if you have a diet that's able to make you feel full with reduced hunger, then you're much better positioned to comply to that calorie restriction. Is there any way we could reduce it down to saying eat a big steak and you'll feel fuller for longer or or is that too simplistic? No, that is too simplistic. because, (laughs) Because, you know, we don't eat single foods. We don't tend to eat single nutrients. And Mm. actually, we've done a lot of work at the Rowett that shows that when you do increase the amount of um, protein in the form of, from animal products, meat in particular, red meat. Well, we know that red meat consumption, elevated red meat consumption is not recommended from a public health point of view because it's linked to colorectal cancer. And that's because the meat is fermented in the fermented in the intestines and that produces um, potential toxic compounds um, that you really don't want to be going through your colon. So, and one of, the, one of the protective ways to counterbalance that is to make sure that you have an adequate supply of dietary fibre because that's such an, an important feature of a diet that impacts on transit time, so from the mouth to anus. Um, so I think the other um, nutrient that we could consider as, as having the capability of making us feel fuller for for a a prolonged period of time is within the context of dietary fibre and sort of water content. And that's why often during dieting, we're encouraged to eat more um, sort of vegetables and whole grains because they provide bulk and with lower amount of calories. Now, you've done a lot of work with big, uh, big multiples on products that are meant to keep you fuller for longer would you say that there was one particular aspect of this that surprised you one thing that or one either one ingredient a type of food or a way of eating it that really made you think this could make a significant difference to people's lives even though i have knowledge and experience about nutrition i think we also have to recognize that consumers when they go into a supermarket as part of that retail experience, that 50% of consumers are not interested in health. Mm. And they are going to be influenced by marketing and other buy one, get one free offers and maybe perhaps at the restricted budget that they have on that day. So really, I think the more I spend on my research, I want to be able to try and understand, yes, mechanisms so that that can be applied from science based directly onto the supermarket shelf. And that's actually quite a complex um, system. And um, 
you know, that, that you need to think about how how we can use food to enhance health, really. And, I, and one of the simple messages that I can give is that remember, every eating episode has the opportunity to enhance health. If we're talking about improving uh, gut health, for example, we know that we can change gut health very rapidly, you know, within days of changing the diet. So even though you've had, you know, uh, 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 maybe perhaps an off week and you haven't been eating healthily, then you can really turn around that really quickly. So mm. I get the sense that uh, that you're saying, <laughs> that you're throwing your hands up a little bit with the consumer and saying, I do all this work and you don't pay a blind bit of notice. You go into the supermarket and you grab a chocolate. Um, but uh, consumers are annoying sometimes, aren't they? Well, um, <laughs> you know, consumers are in a, in a are in a supermarket to to buy, and and supermarkets want repeat purchase. So, actually, one of the other factors that we need to consider is that foods need to be appealing. They need to be um, the the taste needs to be nice, and it needs to be an enjoyment. People don't want to eat things that they that, that, that they don't enjoy so yeah. and that's quite challenging to do if you're trying to trying to lose weight very very nicely put you put it much better than i did um okay let's move on to catherine now catherine <laughs> consumers care about about health at, at some level um they say that they care about diet do they understand do you think the concepts of satiety and satiation um, I mean, that's a good question. Satiety and satiation, as Alexandra was discussing, is very complex. I think some consumers do understand it um, if they read around the subject, but in general, people probably don't. And one of the problems is we can't actually communicate it directly to consumers in branded communications. But consumers, I mean, depending on the surveys you look at, you know, we have figures saying that, you know, this recent survey I looked at, 77% of people say wellness is extremely important to them and that 80% of them want to improve their wellness. And there's even a statistic that says 75% of people feel that brands could do more to make wellness, wellness easier for them to achieve. So there is the interest and, you know, foods and dietary patterns that could enhance satiety would really provide benefits to the consumers because we do know that they do want to, cons they want to eat healthier. And um, to put it into context, um, you know, 25% of people are trying to lose weight most of the time, and that would equate to 13 million people in the UK on a diet every day. Mm. And also, it's quite funny, 44% of Britons um, decided their New Year's resolution was to lose weight, probably again this year. So people are interested, but they're probably confused, to be honest. Mm. And, and I mean, is, is the concept of wellness part of the confusion? I mean, I... I I don't really know what wellness means. It doesn't seem to mean health. It sort of it seems to combine mindfulness and health, a bit of diet and a bit of hopes and dreams. I mean, is it is it one of those weasel words that that obscures good yes. health outcomes and nutrition, or or is it helpful? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, well, wellness is just such a word, and lots of words are sort of used in communications and branded communications that are quite fluffy and vague, mm. probably because it's very hard to define them. Um, but wellness is, is probably overused. But I suppose that sense of wellness is probably a holistic sense of wellness that people want to achieve. But people, you know, health-conscious people, they may be health-conscious for various reasons. It might be because of their bones, might be because of their weight, might be because of strength. So it is a very, very broad, vague term. Mm. Um, 
you know, we're all trying to achieve wellness. We probably don't know what we mean by it, though. <laughs> um, now, and, and uh, I mean, thinking along these lines again, would you say that a lot of the messages in the media about staying for, fuller for longer are accurate? Are, are there... Um, <laughs> Is there a lot of nonsense out there? Because there are a lot of sofa nutritionists who, who crop up on on um, on morning TV programs. You don't really seem to have much evidence-based... Um, yes, I totally agree with you. There is so much misinformation out there. Any, and anything particular that, that strikes you as, as being... I mean, it's, it's really interesting. In my line of work, I work with food companies and I work on communications, you know, what you can say about a food, and what you can say about a brand. And that is really strictly regulated by the law. Um, I mean, there's very little you can say about weight loss on a brand, to be honest. There's nothing you can really say about satiety or appetite control. Mm. So this is one of the problems, even though the science is really is, is, is developing and is, is pretty strong. There are no approved claims that you can make for a food. Now, you can in the public media or in television or celebrity influences, they can, you know, talk about um, satiety and appetite control about products or about just basic messages. And it isn't necessarily backed up by the science. Mm. It's, it's just sort of, this sort of fluffy things. And it leads to confusion in the consumer. And that's the problem really. But, you know, brands, brands are tied in terms of what they can actually say legally on products. So that doesn't help to get a sort of a clear um, fact-based message out at the moment. And do you think that, that this confuses, uh, it's not just a confusion, but, but is this actually putting us back further rather than helping us, uh, helping consumers make choices that, that work? Is this big sort of fluff of nutritional crap that's, that's peddled mm-hmm. actually making things worse for people? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, as Alexandra is saying, I mean, really at the end of the day, um, public health nutrition or kind of healthy eating is, is terribly simple. It's all moderation. It's very mm-hmm. boring. It's moderation. Um, understand where your foods come from, you know, balance, eating not too much, you know, energy in, energy out. It is boring, but a lot of people, we want that quick fix and, yeah. you know, we'll peddle that. And, you know, nutrition, you know, is... It, it's, it's overtaken by celebrity endorsements, I think, a lot of the time. Yeah. So, and probably and, and we, we all want to fix it and obscures it. And, you know, foodies. And, and it's really, I think, another problem, I think, is in the, in the UK is that we have this awful kind of guilt associated with eating. We don't have that sort of natural love of food and understanding food and food is something to be enjoyed and it's something to be it's part of celebration. We have mm. a very sort of Protestant attitude towards food. So we do have this sort of guilt that we, we have sitting on our shoulders every time we eat something. So that's why we're probably looking for that magic bullet, that yeah. little nugget of information, particularly anything about appetite. If you eat it is, this, you, you, you put your finger on it. Exactly. It. It's the magic bullet. I, I want a yeah. pill that makes me better. I don't want oh, to work. Oh, I want to do. <laughs> yes, we <laughs> all want it. We all want it. We all read it and yeah, we're ever convinced by it. Mm. Now let's get specific here. Um, can you explain explain the system of health claims, how they work, um, what you what what manufacturers uh, can and can't put on their product as a claim? Yes, yes. So health claims and what we call nutrition claims, they're re- really strictly regulated by law, um, and they were strictly regulated. They came into force in two thousand and seven. Um, when the EU, when we were in the EU, they, they adopted regulations on the use of what we call nutrition and health claims for foods and drinks that were sold in any European country. And the, the premises is to ensure that clear, accurate and, and evidence-based science is communicated to um, the consumer. So anything that's put onto a food in terms of a nutritional health claim is actually evidence-based. Um, and it's, it's all about helping 
the to enhance the consumer's ability to make an informed and meaningful choice. It's all about education, really. Mm. So a claim is any message or representation. It could be written, it could be an image, it could be a picture, it could be a symbol. Any message that's related to a brand um, that is talking about nutrition or health. So that that's what a claim is. Um, so there are two types broadly. There's what we call the nutrition claims. And this is really when you're stating that your, your brand or your food has a beneficial effect. Mm. Um, so, for example, it has no added sugar or it is high in, in vitamin A. Now, there's a criteria and a definition to make those claims, and it's really strictly regulated. So you can't just say something is high in fiber because you think it's, it's got um, you know, a little bit of fiber added in. It has to be 6% fiber to make a claim high in fiber. So that's the nutrition claims. And, you know, they're quite common. They're on about 40% of food sold across Europe, more, more in the UK, actually. Now, a that's, health that's claim, a huge, I, I didn't realise yes, that. That's a huge yes, amount, isn't it? It is. So, and and it, does, it does help with purchase power. So, for example, high in vitamin C on, on a fruit juice, you know, that makes, immediately gives that health halo. Mm. So they are, they're quite popular. But again, as I say, they're strictly regulated. And this is all about protecting the consumer. The second one is what we call a health claim. And that's any statement that um, health benefits can result from consuming a given food, i.e. that brand. Hmm. For example, like this brand is a source of vitamin A, which can help reinforce the body's natural defense systems. And that's a health claim. So to make that health claim, first of all, you have to be able to make a nutrition claim. So you have to be able to say it's a source of or it's high in vitamin A. And that then triggers you to, to look at whether there are any approved health claims um, and there are approved health claims for vitamin A for things like immunity. So you can make that claim. Now, the, any claim that you want to make on your food, any health claim comes from what we call an approved list. So the EU has an approved list of about of, of hundreds of claims that have kind of gone through the process or the scientific um, reviews to be approved. So we have this register in Europe called the EU Register of Health Claims. So if there's a health claim on that list, you can use it. If there isn't a health claim on that list, you can't use it. Mm. Now, since um, January 1st, of course, we've come out of the EU. So the European law has basically gone into our legislation here. And instead of having the European regulatory body, we now have a UK regulatory body called the UK HMCC, and this is eight experts who will sit and look at any submissions from companies who would like to make a health claim because you can submit dossiers of evidence mm-hmm. if a company to, wants to make to a new a, claim that hasn't been made. New claim. And this is where, where kind of new claims for appetite and satiety would come in. Um, so the, the new regulatory body in the UK will look after England, Scotland, and Wales, but not Northern Ireland, interestingly. That still comes under the European legislation. Mm-hmm. Just for whatever political reasons that is. But in effect, we have the same legislation. So we operate from a, um, if you're doing communications with a brand, you are dictated by legislation that you can only use a claim from an approved list. Yeah. So this is all about protecting the consumer. Now, yeah. there are there are claims that don't exist at the moment, which you know would be really helpful to make, but unfortunately they haven't had approval yet. And one of the areas is satiety and appetite. Now, do you find yourself in your work I mean, presumably most food companies want to make a nutritional claim and a health claim if if they could, more yes. rather than less. Do you find yourself constantly having battles with people say, who, who say, yeah, but look, it, it does this. And you go, <laughs> nope, you can't. I know. It's really is, it, is it a constant <laughs> sort of series of you saying, nah, it's a bit more complicated than that? <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I think, I mean, I think food manufacturers want to be truthful because, I mean, if the market is flooded with unsubstantiated claims, the consumer is going to be even more baffled and not going to believe them. It's all about protecting the consumer. If the consumer is not protected, we're living in the Wild West, which we were previous to all this legislation. You know, there were some crazy claims like fat-dissolving foods, you know, anything could be said, really, and they weren't really being monitored. So we are living in a better state at the moment. I mean, it is, it is frustrating, but um, particularly if there are claims where you feel the evidence is strong enough, but just for one reason or another, it hasn't been accepted yeah, yeah. Uh, as, a, as a claim. So mm. if, I put, uh, if I put Alex and Catherine together now, between you, could you have a quick chat with us about the sorts of claim, health claims that might work or nu nutritional claims? Well, it'd be a health claim. Would it be a health claim or a nutritional claim? For appetite. For appetite, yeah. Uh, this, this food is... Yeah, so for an appetite claim, I mean, Alex, this is a really interesting area. And I, I know there have been lots of submissions, but to date, the EU and stroke UK now, they haven't accepted the evidence that's been presented to them. And it's really because, the, you know, it's very difficult appetite and satiety evidence. You know, at the end of the day, you want to kind of see an effect on weight reduction or maybe calorie consumption going down after a meal. So it is a very complex area of science. But to date, there is no official claim allowed for appetite or satiety. Having said that, you can kind of get around that in messaging um, if you look at sort of things like the effect of a food on your blood sugar levels. You know, mm. if you've got steady blood sugar levels after eating a food, you know, some consumers may understand that to be a kind of a sort of satiety effect. What would yeah. you say? Yeah, no, I agree with you that, um, that 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 hopefully in the future there will be food ranges or food products that do uh, meet the EFSA uh, guidance for uh, for that. But I think also to think about if we think about nutrition claims, then I suppose we are in a period of protein power. Is what I would call it. Mm, yeah, and that consumers are or sectors of consumers are recognising that that products that are labelled higher in protein, which would mean that it'd be over 20% as a proportion of calories, is linked to um, a feeling of uh, appetite control. And that has really, um, really come from, I would say, more the sports uh, arena and then sort of spread out from, from sports science into sort of mainstream products. Now, it can be quite confusing for some um, consumers because obviously some products that are labelled higher in protein maybe don't have the best nutritional profile or uh, have got uh, added products added in to make it higher in protein and it's sometimes not clear, you know, what the source of those are. So I think that in general that educating consumers about nutrition profiles beyond just the traffic light system that we currently have would be beneficial. Yes, I agree with you, because the other area that consumers are starting to get an understanding about is fibre as well, high fibre, and it's linked to satiety. So some food manufacturers would probably rely on, you know, sort of hoping that there is some sort of understanding amongst the consumers that if they have a high protein claim or a high fibre claim that they can indirectly somehow communicate <laughs> the weight loss 
Appetite. And it comes down to, to various different semiotics, really, isn't it? There, there are little yeah. signals that you can use. on so, so, so the phrase fuller for longer, would that rate as a nutritional claim, Catherine? I think that would rate as a nutritional claim. And that's a very hard claim to um, substantiate. And I know it does go out there. I mean, the only way you could hope to substantiate that is through this effect on um, blood glucose levels. So there are some, so the, the claims that exist at the moment uh, um, for certain ingredients in foods, you can make a, a, a claim that says that the effect of this food with this ingredient in it um, has a, a good effect on steadying your blood glucose levels. And then you could, from that, sort of develop a sort of a message around feeling fuller for longer. Mm. And it's it's really polydextroses and sort of fibre um, particles like um, beta-glucan and sweeteners like fructose. If your food has that in it, there is that is an approved claim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. Now, Alex, uh, if we think about consumers, we've been talking very much about the industry and what and the claims they can make so far. Um, are there things that you feel consumers should be looking for on a pack, or or, or is it not? Is it just too complex to, for for consumers to be able to make their own decisions on things like this at the moment? So, I think as a nutritionist, then really, I am actually thinking about the whole diet. So, um, often we don't plan all of our meals in advance so we have what we call eating episodes so we have our breakfast our lunch and our evening meal and then snacks in between so I think in order to um, avoid uh, weight gain or even trying to be weight stable you do need a little bit of pre-planning about having healthy options you know, if you're eating on the go, whether you're taking that to work with you, so you're not just entirely reliant on only the foods that are going to be available in your either work environment or work canteen. Mm. So I think, um, you know, that, that consumers um, will have their own taste preferences and it's really trying to educate yourself and be able to use the budget you have to make more informed choices. And Alex, one last question for you. We, we talked about a year ago. What has cropped up um, in the year since we talked? Have there been new revelations or new, a new level of understanding about any particular aspect of, uh, of nutrition that, that affects this area? I do want to come back to a topic that is quite close to my heart and that I've been working on for a number of years, and that is thinking about the interaction between time of eating and how that can influence potentially our metabolism and then how it interacts with the types of foods that we're eating. And it might be that, for example, I can see a huge uh, possibility to have a more informed uh, food recommendations particularly for people who work shifts because currently we just don't have that so from a public health point of view I think that would be incredibly important and the other key area that I've been working on is thinking about uh, that we all want to live longer and we want to live well so how do we do that well there's an important role for protein there in that um, protein has such a, a important uh, physiological aspect to support our body composition specifically our lean body mass or muscle mass as we age so we want to maintain that 
and avoid the clinical term of sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass. So mm. protein and um, resistance exercise is important to maintain our body composition. And I can see in the future a niche products or a range of products that are specifically targeted towards promoting healthy aging, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and Catherine, last question for you. Um, a really simple one, this one. Um, how do we get the public eating better? Is there, are we looking at regulation? Are we looking at uh, ad campaigns? Are we looking at better nutrition, food in schools? Oh, gosh, in schools. I think education in schools, and it's all about teaching kids um, basic nutrition and, and introducing them into the idea of cooking and where food comes from, that's really going to be it for the future. I think our regulations are pretty tight at the moment in terms of health claims. It's just making sure that companies stick to them. They tend to do it. But I tell you, one of the areas that's interesting is like influence, like celebrity influences. Mm. I mean, any health claim about a brand, you know, a brand, if, for example, any message about a brand is a health claim. So if brands pay health influences or celebrity influences on Instagram to talk about their brands, that all comes under the legislation. So if you find like Instagram kind of copy talking about this food is great for appetite control, that's actually breaking the law. So it's really that smaller companies, niche companies need to understand the legislation mm. and need to understand their social media is managed by it. So I think if we follow the legislation, we're in a good place. Um, and I think at the end of the day, you know, as Alexandra said, I mean, you know, it's very holistic nutrition. It's something to be enjoyed, um, especially I think the future is going to be about us losing more weight in terms of COVID. And I think what's really interesting statistic I came across the other day was since in the first month after lockdown, um, global searches for immunity increased by 66%. So mm. going to be a future driver. And there are a lot of claims for immunity. And I mean, things like vitamin D will be quite interesting. So I think that's where the future will be. One last, last question for both of you. Uh, has since, since you know, the, over the last year, ha, have you seen people, you know, and it's difficult to quantify this, obviously, have you seen, have you got the sense that people care more about nutrition? People have been at home, they've been cooking more for themselves, um, but obviously lots of aspects of health have been compromised. Do you think they are more open to messages about nutrition and about eating for good health? Well, I would say, in my point of view, I'd say, yes, they are. They're probably, everyone's, eating, everyone's making their bread. They're maybe eating a bit, bit more calories than they want to. They can't exercise as they want to. But I think for some people, it'll, it'll really depend on somebody's, where they're coming from. For some people, where they have time to cook, yes, they're cooking more. For, other, for families who are struggling with home education, maybe they're not cooking more. Maybe they're relying on convenience foods and they're struggling. And they probably are really interested in nutrition. And, you know, they are probably very receptive to believable um you know messaging so that's why it's so important to follow the letter of the law really for food companies um but i would think i think yeah the the trend is definitely going to be towards wanting to have improved wellness and part of that wellness will be eating better and knowing probably where your food comes from sustainability will come into it as well Hmm. and alex have you have you seen um, a difference in attitudes so yes i i want to reflect on something that i find quite um that forces me to want to to write more grants and that's the social inequalities and that Mm. you know as we've been uh at home and then we've seen social inequalities widen and that's perhaps more apparent where i'm based in scotland so 
um, and that how, how can we address that in relationship to uh, obesity and uh, for people who are either on a low income or facing health inequalities or dietary inequalities. So really, we need more research on this. And um, yeah, that, that's certainly on my horizon for the future. Hmm. Well, Alex and Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I hope we can pick this up again, um, preferably not a, a year in advance from here, but um, but ho- hopefully quite soon. You've been listening to the Tabletop Podcast brought to you by Food Matters, and you heard from Professor Alexandra Johnston and Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan and me, Stephen Gates. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like one of our other podcasts in which we explore pretty much every aspect of the food industry, from salmon farm sustainability to apprenticeships. Subscribe to get every episode freshly delivered you on apple spotify google or your preferred podcasting platform and to find out more take a look at foodmatters.co.uk goodbye you've been listening to the tabletop podcast brought to you by food matters subscribe to get every episode freshly delivered on apple spotify google or your preferred podcasting platform and to find out more please visit foodmatters.co.uk